Well, there was a woman who was a poor peasant, and she lived in a small hut with her husband, a couple of kids, and uh, this very crowded hut suddenly became even worse when her husband's parents lost their own home and came to live with them. Now, the woman just found the situation unbearable with all these people crammed in a very small place, so she went to the village elder who had been known in the past to help other people, and she explained the situation and how, how, how hard it was, and uh, the elder said to this woman, she said, do you, do, he said, do you have a cow? And she said, well, yes, we have a cow. And he said, I want you to move the cow into the hut with you and then come back and see me in a week. Now, this woman thought he had lost his mind, but since he had been able to help other people, she did as he said, and she came back a week later and she said, it's horrible. Things are even worse than ever. And he said, okay, do you have any chickens? And she said, well, yes, we have chickens. And he said, I want you to move the chickens into the hut with you as well. Now again, she didn't understand what he was saying, but she did as he asked and came back a week later, and this time she was in tears. And she said, it's terrible, it's unbearable with the cow, the chickens, my kids, my husband, his parents, there's nowhere to even move. And he said, I want you to go home and take the chickens out of the hut and come back and see me. So she came back a, a week later and she said, things are better, but it's still very tight in there. And he said, okay, this time take the cow out of your house and it will solve your problem and then come back and see me. A week later, she came back and said, he said, how are things going? She said, it's fine with the chicken and the cows out, uh, my husband, kids, and his parents, we all have the room we need. <laughs> you know, sometimes we forget how good things are until we see the alternatives, Right? As you look at your life today, would you say that you're content? As I ask you if you're content, you may immediately think, well, you know, Roger, work is hard. And, and, or my boss. My boss is a really big problem. And my car. My car's always breaking down. It's, a, it's an old clunker. And the kids, the kids are causing problems. And as you think about all the things, were you immediately thinking of the things in your life that are wrong instead of all the things in your life that you're blessed with. Now, if you defaulted to those other things, let me ask you for a moment what life would be like if suddenly that job that you're having so much difficulty with were gone, you were suddenly out of work. Or maybe that old clunker were suddenly taken away from you and you had to walk everywhere that you went. And those kids that are a problem, what if they were suddenly gone? As you think about all those things in your life that maybe this morning you're grumbling about, what if they were suddenly taken away from you and then God were to give them back to you? How thankful would you be to suddenly get those things back? Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, you know, Roger, I'm content. I like my life just the way it is. I don't want to change anything. That's great. But what if your life were to suddenly change? What if things were to be different? Could you still say that you were content? Today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 4, and in it we're going to see a man by the name of Paul who could say, no matter what the situation is, I'm content. To see what Paul's secret is, I invite you to look with me at Philippians chapter 4 and verses 10 through 13. Paul writes for us, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from one. For I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, as Paul writes this, we see what he's done many times in the book. He's, he's rejoicing again. Now, it may be that as you read this, you think because of what Paul said in verse 10 is why he's rejoicing. There he says, uh, you've revived your concern for me. They've sent a financial gift, and it would be easy for us to say, well, Paul's feeling good because he's got money in his pocket. But notice that he says in verse 11 that his joy is not tied to what he has. He says, not that I speak from one, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am in. You see, the picture here of Paul is not that he's sitting on some beach with a wad of money, maybe his bank statements, fanning himself, and saying, you know, whether it's Bermuda or the Bahamas, whether I'm suffering at Jack Tar Village or whatever resort I'm in, I've learned to be content. I want to remind you that, that Paul is not at Jack Tar Village. He's in jail. He's chained to a Roman guard. He's in prison. He's facing death. And he says, regardless of that, I'm content. Now, when you hear the word contentment, what, what picture comes to your mind? I want you to think of a picture of contentment. Is it a, a cat curled up in a, in a sunspot? It's kind of rolled over, purring? Maybe the picture you have is that of a, a little boy who's bare-chested and eating ice cream that's melting on him faster than it's melting in his mouth. Or, or maybe you're thinking, you know, there's a saying, ignorance is bliss, so maybe the only people who can really be content are those that are too young or too dumb to know any better. So maybe your picture is that of a cow that's in a lush green pasture, not like the drought we've had in San Antonio, but it's a beautiful green pasture. And it's standing there just mindlessly chewing its cud, staring off into the distance. Is that what contentment looks like? Now, maybe you're thinking, well, contentment is something that only those who are, who are really well-off can have, the ultra-rich who have enough to deal with any contingency. Is that what true contentment would come from, having more money than you could ever spend? Maybe you've heard of uh, John D. Rockefeller. He was one of the richest men that has ever lived. In his day, he was said to be the richest. And Rockefeller one day was sitting in his country club, and he was across the table from another tycoon, and they were talking. And Rockefeller said to his friend, he said, you know, I'm, I'm just not content. And his friend said, John, you, you, you're a captain of industry. You have immense wealth. You have everything. He says, what would it take for you to be content? And Rockefeller said, you know, I, I, I just don't know. I, I, I think if I had just $100 more than I have now, then I'd be content. Now, $100 was a lot of money then. It still is today, but even more so then. But his, his buddy reached into his pocket. He pulls out his wallet and takes out a $100 bill, and he sl slips it over to Rockefeller. And Rockefeller gets his 100 He says, what's this for? And his friend says, you know, John, it's worth $100 to me to see what a truly contented man looks like. Now, Rockefeller takes his hundred, and he, he looks at it, he thinks for a moment, he folds it up, he puts it in his pocket, and he said, you know, if I had just a hundred dollars more, <laughs> I'd be content. Friends, when is enough really enough? King Solomon, if you want, you can turn over in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. 
In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we find where King Solomon, who was said to be the wisest and richest man who has ever lived, God had Solomon write these words for us in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11. It says, Solomon writes, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. It says he's not getting drunk, he's just enjoying the best that there is. And, and how could I take hold of, and, and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there was, is for the sons of men to do under heaven, under the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works, I built houses for myself, I planted vineyards for myself, I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labors, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity, and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Friends, are those the words that you would expect to hear from the man who had it all? Solomon says, I had it all. And while there was some pleasure in that, God gives us good things and we can derive some pleasure. But what we find is it's passing, isn't it? It doesn't give us permanent peace or happiness or contentment. Solomon isn't the only one who's found this to be true. Maybe you've heard of the uh, Christina Onassis. She was the daughter of the shipping magnate. They had a, a multinational uh, corporation, a shipping company. They were billionaires. They had all the money, all the things the world could offer you. And the story of her life was recorded in a biography. And the title of her biography is titled, All the Pain That Money Can Buy. In it, she says, happiness is not based on money or power. The proof of that is my family. If you need further proof, think of all the rich and powerful people you see in the news, the entertainers, the movie stars, the well-known corporate people who are, are suffering and committing suicide and have children that are train wrecks and on and on. It's not just the rich and the famous who chase after happiness they can't find. What are some of the things that you're chasing after? What are some of the things you've pursued in this world? Possessions, prosperity, positions that you thought would bring you happiness only to find that maybe the latter, as you climb to the very top of it, it was leaning against the wrong wall. Have you ever found that to be true in your life? Think about that toy or tool you just had to have and once you got it, well, then you needed the accessories to go with it. Did you get the latest, greatest gadget only to find a newer version came out and then you had to have that one? How many of us, when we were younger, we wanted to be older, and then when we were older, we wanted to be younger? 
There's a boy by the name, of, a man actually now by the name of Jason Lehman, and he describes this dilemma in a poem he wrote that is called Present Tense. Jason says it was spring, but it was summer that I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall that I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter that I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring that I wanted. The warmth and blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood that I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 that I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 that I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. Does that describe anyone here today? How many of us are always looking past the present to the next thing? The next thing we want, the next season, the next position, the next diploma, whatever it is that we're seeking after, that we fail to enjoy the blessings of the moment. How many times have we achieved a goal only to find that that happiness was fleeting or left us unfulfilled? If, if you're looking for real meaning in life, it's not in the stuff that the world offers to us. King Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived and who had it all, said, you know where you find true meaning and contentment? True enjoyment in this life? He says it's found in God. In Ecclesiastes 2.25, he tells us, for who can have enjoyment without God? Who can have enjoyment without God? Paul tells us something similar in Philippians 4.11. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. You see, Paul found contentment not in the circumstances of life. As you look at how contentment is spelled, have you ever noticed that the root of the word is content? Contentment comes from the content of your life. It's, it's what's inside of us. The Greek word that is used here means contained or self-sufficient. Now, the pagan philosophers of Paul's day used it to speak of human self-reliance, but Paul said that's not where we find our peace. He found it in a divinely bestowed sufficiency. Paul tells us that being content comes from relying on God and not ourselves. As you look at Philippians 4.13, Paul doesn't say there, I can do all things through Paul. He says, I can do all things through Christ. Paul's power, his peace, it came from God. As we talk about the content of our life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do you realize the content you have inside you is God himself? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, And do you not know that your body is the temple of the Lord, and that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells within you? In 1 John 4, 4, we're told, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What is the content of your life this morning? Is it Jesus Christ? Do you have God's presence within you? The answer to contentment is not in the externals or circumstances of life, but it comes from having Christ in us. You see, what God tells us here is stop filling your life with all the stuff you're pursuing, true contentment, true peace, 
The power you need to get through this day and the next and the next comes through having God in you. The secret to contentment is, is not to rely on ourselves or the stuff we have. When we do that, what we find is we're on a roller coaster of life. Because when we have things, things are good. But when things are not the way we want, they're bad. Notice that we're told here about contentment, not happiness. The word happy, the root meaning of that is happenstance. When we're happy, it's based upon what's happening to us. The circumstances of life the things that are around us. So if I get a new toy, I'm happy. If I eat a good meal, I'm happy. If, if uh, I pay off my house, I'd be really happy, right? Until all that extra money we have suddenly has to go to repair the car or to college or to some other expense. And so if we're basing it upon what we have, suddenly that is gone and our happiness is gone with it. If we go through life letting our circumstances control our joy, then we'll find that our circumstances will steal our joy as well. As you look at your life today, are you a thermometer or a thermostat? Do you know the difference? You see, a thermometer simply registers the temperature around you. But a thermostat controls the temperature around you. So as you look at your life, are you being driven by the circumstances around you and simply registering, I'm happy or sad based upon what's happening around me, or are you more like a thermostat where you're saying God is the one who is in control, and therefore I will rest in him even in the times of tragedy and the hard things? We can't always control what happens to us, but we can control our response. In the world, there will be suffering. There will be hard things that happen. But while suffering is inevitable, misery is an option. Which will you choose? As you read about Paul, Paul was one who, who could have been a thermometer and said, you know what, life is lousy. Read 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 24 and following where his resume is. Paul tells you all about his life. This time in the, the jail in Rome where he's writing the letter of Philippians, it's not his first time in prison. Paul's been there many times before. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been uh, facing persecution his whole life. If Paul wanted to talk about his circumstances and contentment coming from life, Paul was one who would have said, life is lousy. But if we're like Paul and we let ourselves be controlled by Christ rather than our circumstances, then we can go from being a victim to a victor. Now, this isn't some easy believism, prosperity thing I'm talking about. What Paul understands here is that while his circumstances changed, his position in Christ never did. We've talked about what it means to be in Christ throughout Philippians. Our position, being safe in the nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ. In John 10, 28, he talks about how we've been put in his hand and he closes it around says, his father, God, who is greater than all, has closed his hand around us. And he says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. And Paul was one who realized he was safe in the hands of Christ. So no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the storm was all around him, he could have peace. Whether he was experiencing times of plenty or the plenty of times he was suffering. Paul tells us in verse 13, I know how to get along with humble means. And I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. When he says here in verse 11, he's learned, the word there means to learn by experience. Anyone here ever attended the school of hard knocks? You know, this is what Paul's saying. Hey, I've learned. 
through life. But then he uses a second word in verse 12, where he says he's, he's also learned, and there it means to be initiated into the secret or hidden things. Now, in the, the world of Paul, when the pagan philosophers, Gnosticism, this knowledge and all this stuff going around, Eastern mysticism said, oh, well, there's this, this peace, this knowledge you can have if you are initiated into the secret higher things. And we live in a world with this stuff, too. Have you ever heard of the New Age movement or these other things? You ever seen one of these bumper stickers that say, visualize world peace? You know, if all these people are visualizing world peace, where is it? So what do we do when we're in this world and we don't have peace? Because the circumstances all around us are, are, are just being torn apart. Did you see the news about what's happening in Kenya? The, the terrorists that went in and, and have killed scores of people, these Muslim terrorists who have gone in. And then over in Pakistan, there were 52 Christians that were killed just again this weekend because as they were coming out of a church service, a uh, terrorist blew up the worshipers walking out the door. And so as you look at this, these Christians that are under attack all around the world, where is their peace? It's not in the safety of the world or the things around them. And Paul and the believers in his day were suffering this as well. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Paul told us in those times we need to turn to God and turn our worries over to him. And as we do, it says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard our hearts and our minds, where? In Christ Jesus. When we have Christ in control of our lives, even when the circumstances of life are spinning out of control, we can have peace. I just mentioned these two terrorist incidents that happened this week. There was another one that many of you will remember. It happened in 2004 in Beslan, Russia. Do you remember when the, the terrorists came in the first day of school and took over that elementary school? And there was a horrible attack that took place where 334 civilians and children were wounded, were killed, and hundreds of others were wounded. We know how terrible the situation was here at the elementary school where, where the gunmen went in and killed less than 30 kids. This is 334 that were killed. A good friend of mine, Peter Mitskovich, he was a friend I attended seminary with, and he is the vice president of the Russian Baptist. And when this tragedy happened, Peter was called by the authorities to come in and try to help minister to the grieving community and the families there. And as Peter was there, he wrote me a letter from the field in the midst of all of this. And, and this is a portion of what Peter wrote to me back in 2004 when this terrorist attack took place as he was burying many of these children and, and ministering to families. He said, yesterday I visited with two families of believers who lost their children. Sergei and Beli Tatyov have one daughter, Anna, who is in a coffin. They are missing one more child and another son, Asmez, is in the hospital. You remember, after they blew up the school, there were many children still in the rubble. They didn't know how many were, were killed and they were still sorting through the rubble. At this point, Peter's saying, one is confirmed dead, one is probably dead in the rubble, and the surviving one is in critical condition in the hospital. This man's brother and his wife, Termazuz and Ray Tatiaf, these are next door neighbors' brothers, also have one daughter, Luba, in a coffin, and their other three children are missing. When the mothers prayed, I was surprised to hear them say to the Lord, you are teaching us to be thankful for everything. 
Peter says, how is it possible when you had seven children and right now in your hands only one? Parents, if you had between you and your brother or sister, your next door neighbor who was your family member, there's only one child out of seven that you know is possibly going to live out of this. Could you say, God, we are thankful for what you're teaching us? Peter gives this answer. He says, Christians have a unique perspective on death. One that no one else in the world can have due to the resurrection of our founder, Jesus Christ, who said, because I live, you shall live also. Peter went on to quote the Puritan Thomas Watson, who said, what a wicked man fears a godly man hopes for. The Christian's best things are to come. The world is but a great inn where we are to stay a night or two and then be gone. Therefore, what madness it is to set our heart upon our inn so as to forget our home that is in heaven. Those of us who are Christians need to remember we are not home yet. We are just passing through this world. Friends, how many of you have ever seen a house built on a bridge that gets you from this side to that side? Does anybody do that? No. So why do we spend all our time worrying about building a, a house on a bridge when God says this world is just a place where we're passing from here to where we will spend eternity with him? There was a young boy who was walking home one night. It was a very dark night, and he was going down a street, and suddenly he came to this gate that went through a graveyard, and he was about to turn through this gate and walk through this graveyard, and there was a man walking down the street the other way, and he said, son, son, stop, what are you doing? He said, don't you know that's a cemetery? He said, aren't you scared to walk through that cemetery at night? And this little boy looks up at this man, and he says, mister, my home is just on the other side. Friends, is that your perspective on death? That your home is just on the other side? In Psalm 23, God tells us that we are passing through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't live there. And he is with us. He is taking us through. We don't even have to fear death. And when it comes to this world, we don't stay here. As we go through this world, 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8 reminds us of this. It says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. We came into this world with nothing. And we will leave this world the same way. Remember our friend John D. Rockefeller? He died one day. And a reporter went to Rockefeller's accountant and he said, I was wondering if you could tell me how much John D. Rockefeller's estate, his stuff, everything he had, how much did he leave behind? And the accountant said, I can tell you to the penny. Now the, the reporter gets out a pen. He's ready for this great scoop. And he says, What's, what is it? And the accountant said, John D. Rockefeller left everything behind. He didn't take a penny with him. How much did he leave? All of it. Friends, how much will you leave behind? All of it. whether it's the titles to our property or, or those things that are attached to our names. You know, one of the things that I do is I, I do a lot of funerals. 
And when I'm in a cemetery burying somebody, I, I'll look around. I usually get there about half an hour before anybody else, and, and, and I'm there, and I'll, I'll read the tombstones around the grave. I know I need a new hobby, but... Um, <laughs> And you know, as I look at the tombstones, you know what I've found is very interesting? I've never once seen on a tombstone, CEO, president of this company, lettered in three sports, top of his class, number one in this or that sport for her. Why don't we put all that stuff on our tombstones? Because you know, in the end, it doesn't matter, does it? You know what you find on tombstones? Beloved mother, father, friend, Son, daughter, that's what matters. Relationships. Servant of Christ, waiting for the resurrection. These are the things you find on tombstones because these are the things that really matter. On the day that we die, all that will matter is whether or not we've received Jesus Christ as our Savior. That is the only question that will have to be answered on that day. Many of you have heard of uh, Jim Elliott. He was a famous missionary who was martyred. And, and he wrote in his journal before he died, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Is that your perspective on life? How many of us here today are foolishly pursuing things in this world that will bring us no lasting contentment? If you really want to know the value of the stuff that you're pursuing in life, I invite you to go home and get on your computer and bring up eBay or Craigslist. Or if you say, I don't do computers, then go to the next garage sale or estate sale that you see and walk around and look at all the worldly treasures that have been amassed. Have you ever been in a garage sale? Maybe you're one who runs them, you know, and you've got stuff you paid hundreds of dollars for sitting out there, you know, on a table. And you got a sticker on it for, you know, 75 cents. And somebody comes walking up and they pick up what used to be a treasure and they're looking at it and they go, will you take a quarter for this? <laughs> and you're holding out for 50 cents, right? No, I can't give it for less than 50 cents. What is the passing value of our stuff? 1 Timothy 6.6 doesn't tell us to pursue prosperity. Instead, it says pursue godliness. It says contentment comes from seeking God and not things. In Matthew 6.33, we're told, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we sought God the way that we sought stuff in this world, what, what difference would our life look like? Would your life be different if you were pursuing God the same way you're pursuing possessions or other stuff in this world? Let me remind you that money will buy you a bed, but not sleep. Money will buy you books, but not intelligence. Money will buy you food, but not an appetite. It can buy you a house, but not a home. It can buy you amusement, but not happiness. Money can buy us a ticket to anywhere in the world except for heaven. That gift comes only through one way, which is Jesus Christ, who died to pay the penalty of death for our sins, and he offers that gift to you and me free of charge. He says, turn from your sins and turn to me to be your Savior, and you can have the gift of eternal life. And you can have what really matters in life, not just your eternal destiny that is set, but the peace that you need in this life 
the power that you need to go through the difficult things in this life. You know, as Christians, we don't have to look at our checkbook to see how wealthy we are. We only have to look at the cross to see what God thought we were worth. That he was willing to leave heaven to come to earth to give his only son to be the payment for your sins and mine. And if you're sitting here today saying, but Roger, you don't know me. You don't know my life and what a mess I've made. God, I, I don't know. I don't know that he could receive me. Friends, read Romans 5.8. Because there it says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were at your worst, while you were at your farthest from him, while you were in rebellion and running from God, what God said is, I came looking for you. And I pursued you. And I took your place and I went to the cross and I paid the penalty of death that you owed. And I love you this much. And I'm waiting for you to come home. God offers us, the, uh, offers us this gift of eternal life if we will accept Jesus. And he offers us the gift of enjoying this life. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus Christ said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. As believers, we're not going to miss out on this earth. God wants us to enjoy our time here. But he wants us to realize that we are passing through and lasting fulfillment in what really counts is in the future. If you want peace and prosperity in your life, it comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so if you've never come to him, today I invite you to turn to Jesus and say, I'm turning from my sins and I'm turning to you, Jesus, to be my savior. Now, friends, many of you here have already taken that step. And what we've forgotten sometimes is who Christ is and what our full focus should be on, pursuing him, godliness, contentment through godliness as a means of great gain, God said. And if we've lost our way, we can refocus today. We can turn back to God. And we can say, I've been looking in the wrong places or I've been allowing the circumstances of life to blow me around. And today, Christ, I'm coming back to you and I'm going to center my life on you. There's a woman by the name of Ella Wheeler Cox. She wrote a poem. And in it, she says uh, this in her simple poem. She says, one ship drives east and another drives west with the selfsame winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tells us the way to go. Paul was one who had set his sails for joy. Paul was one who said this wind could be seen by many as something that will blow you into the rocks and destroy you. But I realize that God is at the rudder. God is in control of the ship. He is the anchor. And because I trust in Christ, I'm not worried. He is the captain of the ship, so whichever direction he wants to take it, I will gladly go, and I will rest in him and trust him. When the winds of life blow for you, who is at the wheel of your ship? Who is setting the direction of the sails? Is it Christ, or is it the circumstances of life? As we end today in prayer, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about whether you are the captain of your ship or whether you've given control to Christ. And if you've been at the wheel of your ship, I want you today to say to God, today, God, I'm giving you the rightful place as the captain of the ship, the one who is directing things, the one who will take control of my life. I'm turning my life over to you today, God. For some, it may be that this morning you're saying to Christ, today I'm coming home. For the first time, I'm turning to you to be my Savior. 
For others of you who have been running from God, it may be that this morning you say to him, today, God, I want to come home like the prodigal son or daughter. Today I'm coming home. As you think about your life and the circumstances you're facing today, I want you to just go to God and give those to him in prayer. As we close, there will be prayer leaders here at the front who can pray with you if you need somebody to help you in prayer, to talk with, to counsel you. And I want you to just take a moment now to silently go to God and roll the problems that you have in your life onto him today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. Love that was demonstrated in that you left your throne in heaven to go to the cross, to pay the penalty of sin that was death that we owed. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took our place, giving your life as a ransom, as the payment, so that we could have the gift of eternal life. Lord God, that life that you've given to us is one that you don't want us to just look forward to in the future, but one that you want us to live and enjoy now. So God, we pray that today we would be those who would turn to you, that like Paul, we would find peace in our circumstances through our position in Christ, realizing that the content of our life is you, Jesus that you, Holy Spirit, who live within us are, are there to lead and guide and protect us, that you, God the Father, are greater than all, and you've wrapped your hand around that of your Son who holds us. And so, Lord, no matter what it is we're facing today, we know that as the, the storm winds are blowing among so many here this morning that they can be safe in your, in your safe harbor, in your hand. So we pray, Father, that you would just surround them with your peace. As you tell us, Lord, in, in your word in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to you. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord God, we ask for that peace today that you would surround those who are here that need it. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to remind you again, there are prayer leaders here to speak with you. And if you're a member that will be voting, just uh, get your ballots and come back in. We'll start the congregational meeting promptly at 1030. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.